0: After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with aji verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.
1: Hey, what's up, my Woods people? I'm Tyler Jones, and this is the Backcountry Miniseries from the Element Podcast. Casey, fill them in. Since we are diving headfirst into
2: the backcountry hunting this season, we decided to call in some help and talk to some experts that know how to crush it in
1: the backcountry. So make sure and subscribe, and if this is helpful, we'd love for you guys to give us a five-star rating and an iTunes review.
2: Absolutely. Now, let's get into it, because I still have a lot of Mountain House flavors to try before September gets here. <laughs> Okay, so on the show today, we've got Pete Munich with Stone Glacier and the Goat Alliance. Pete, what's up, dude? Hey, how's it going, guys? Uh, it's good. going good. We just got our feel of uh, traditional Mexican food for the day, so feeling <laughs> right. It's, it's lunchtime here, and uh, man, that's what we call backcountry fuel around here. Just some good old <laughs> beans and rice with, with some Mexican food. <laughs>
3: yeah, there you go.
2: Yeah, it's good stuff, man. So, um, Pete, uh, as you know, we've talked about a little bit. Uh, We've got a big time backcountry hunt coming up this season. Uh, We're pretty inexperienced with this stuff and we're trying to talk to people that we know from uh, personal acquaintances or people that uh, we see go hard on social media. Well, not actually hard on social media, but go hard (laughs) and put it on social media (laughs) in the backcountry and get it done. And uh, you're one of those guys, man. Um, Where exactly did you get your start going in the backcountry and doing all this crazy stuff?
3: Yeah, I uh, I live in Bozeman, Montana. I've been here for 12 years, but I moved here in 2007 to go to college, and that's when I really started cutting my teeth, putting a backpack on and chasing elk. Um, that's evolved into a lot of different things that I like doing now, from hunting sheep and goats to mountain lion hunting. Um, but I think it all probably started, you know, making that switch from being a whitetail hunter and a turkey hunter to a, a mountain a backpack hunter was probably in uh, my college years, starting in 2007 when I moved to Montana.
2: Yeah, that's cool. So you kind of made the same transition that we are working on. I mean, we'll never transition from the white tail or turkey stuff, but uh, right. you know, you kind of can relate to some of the struggles that we're dealing with as far as like trying to figure out this whole like living off your back kind of thing and, and oh, yeah. uh, understanding that what you're toting around in your backpack is what you have to survive on. Uh, so when was your first like true like overnight or backpack kind of thing?
3: Yeah, I started chasing elk with buddies probably, you know, my sophomore year of college. Started doing overnights. Um, pretty simple stuff, not straying too far from trailheads, but you know, making an effort to stay overnight in areas that we thought we could kill elk in. Yeah. Um, and that's kinda where I started to dip my toes into it. And this is before I you know, i I started with not the best gear, not the best boots, not the best backpack, but you work with what you got. And through the years, kind of dial your gear list, and mm-hmm. things get a little easier and more comfortable as you gain experience. And money. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a nice gear costs money. That's a reality. Um, but I think in 2011, I drew a mountain build permit here in Montana. Man. And that's, I, that's when I went all in. And, uh, as far as mountaineer style hunting and, uh, extended trips at higher elevation and stuff like that. And I just got absolutely addicted to it. Yeah. So I I tried to do that as much as possible now.
2: So, uh we've been talking about backpack hunting some and then you just used a new term to me and that's mountaineering style hunting. Uh, is that those differentiate there? Is that just like a more extreme
3: form of it or what is that? Yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm referring to, uh, when I talk about that is sheep and goat hunting stuff that's taking you above the Alpine, uh, maybe often into more dangerous technical terrain that your average deer
1: or elk hunt might not get you into. Gotcha. Um, yeah that's that's where i like it the most mm-hmm. cool is that that instance kind of why you or how you ended up at uh stone glacier there
3: yeah it's a funny chain of events you know i i kind of joke that uh hunting that mountain goat in 2011 changed my life and uh i'll try to tell this story quickly but i i killed the mountain goat and then uh for a short time after that i actually moved to puerto rico oh wow um, i lived in porter after i graduated college i stuck around for a hunting season then i hightailed it to puerto rico for about half a year did you lose and, your residency uh, when you did that uh i did yeah oh well, no then, no uh, well i came i came back and got it back but, okay. and, uh but anyways i um Came back from Puerto Rico. I was homeless. I was living on a buddy's couch. I was 22 years old. And uh, my mountain goat was finished at the taxidermist <laughs> and I had nowhere to put it. So I called a popular downtown store in Bozeman called Schnee's, local boot company. Yeah. And they've got great taxidermy in their store. And I said, Hey, I got this mountain goat. It's coming back from the taxidermy. It's all finished. It's a local goat. It was shot just outside of Bozeman. There's a there's a magazine article coming out about it. Can you please house it for me and try to pitch it to them? And they said, absolutely. So I ended up putting that mountain goat in the front window of Schnee's in downtown Bozeman, because so had nowhere else for it. <laughs> and, uh, through that, through that experience, I met the owner of Schnee's John Edwards, who was kind enough to offer me my first, uh, professional job, which was working with the marketing and sales teams at Schnee's, um, In my time, my tenure at Schnee's, I was fortunate enough to meet a guy named Kurt Roscoe, who was a backpack designer here in Bozeman, thinking about launching a brand called Stone Glacier. And so we at Schnee's became the exclusive retailer for Stone Glacier backpacks for the first year and a half, two years of the brand's existence. So about a year and a half, two years into it, I was working with Kurt on the side, building backpacks at night after work and in my garage and stuff. And uh, there was some momentum to it. So I I left my job at Schnee's, came on full time at Stone Glacier, and uh, we've been at it ever since cool it's awesome it's bad at the bone dude and so uh, it all comes back to shooting that damn mountain goat, not having anywhere to put them <laughs> it's the american dream dude that's, a, yeah, that's th- it the american dream is just to get a goat tag much less
2: <laughs> help it find you a career you know <laughs> but that's cool man I-, I would imagine that uh now the pack you're using is much better than the pack you used when you packed the mountain goat out is
3: that correct yeah i, I would <laughs> absolutely agree with that statement yeah, I'm too lucky to use the gear we got right
2: now yeah, yeah that's cool man so um while we're on packs you know um let's just make a real general broad question here and see what you do yeah. with it
3: uh what what makes a good pack well you got to be comfortable and got to be lightweight Those yeah two things i'm going for um so yeah you know being comfortable on extended hunts is just an absolute necessity. And then having the functionality of a pack that's designed to carry extreme heavy loads off the mountain, you know, whether it's an elk quarter or a sheep cape, um, a lot of these hunts, there's, there's no two trips, you know, like you, you're so far in the back country that everything's got to come out in one swoop. So, mm-hmm. um, having, having the functionality of an expandable load shelf and the ability to haul out more than you came in with is uh, really important.
2: Okay. So tell us, uh, I, I do kind of know what a load shelf is, but for the listener yeah. that might not, might not
3: understand that, <clears throat> can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So there's internally framed backpacks and externally framed backpacks. And some uh-huh. people would consider a stone glacier a bit of a hybrid. Okay. That's uh, where the bag is mounted onto an external frame, but it has the ability To separate away from that frame and create a space between the frame and the bag where you would carry your heaviest item, which is often a big bag of meat. Mm -hmm. So what you've achieved by using a load shelf is you're keeping the heaviest part of your load closest to your center of gravity, minimizing the lateral forces pulling you around. And you also didn't sacrifice the internal volume of your bag with bloody meat uh, to get that stuff out of there. Gotcha. Kind of achieving two things at once.
2: Cool. Uh, so I watched a video on social media the other day of y'all kind of explaining this. Uh, somebody there killed a bear, and y'all were kind of showing how to do it. And it was pretty pretty cool, man. I kind of like the uh, the modular way the stone glacier pack kind of wraps things up or whatever. Um, yeah. Is it uh, an essential thing to have that, like, bottom shelf? Uh, I guess you would call it like the true shelf part of it would be like the, the thing on the bottom that kind of holds everything up. Or, uh, can, is there a way where like a, a pack can just have a frame and then you just strap on like the pack part as the meat is like tied to the frame?
3: Yeah. So, um, stone glacier packs are designed around the load shelf itself is a panel of X pack fabric that kind of, I kind of almost describe it as like a kangaroo pouch or something yeah. in there <clears throat> that once the bag separates away, you can loosen it up and it catches that elk quarter or that bag of meat, Mm-hmm. um, but, there, you know, you might be envisioning old-school-style frames, like big aluminum rectangles on people's backs with a metal shelf at the bottom.
1: Yeah. I've got so that's one of those. the original
3: load. You know, that's kind of the – that's the original load shop. Those things are designed for just hauling those big loads off the mountain. Yeah. But for a backpack-style hunter who needs to keep his gear and clothing and food with him, you know, having the bag in front of the load keeps everything with you.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. So. Speaking of bears, uh, you uh, sent me an email the other day. And we're like, hey, dude, uh, we need to move this interview because I found a big bear last night. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, dude, I can't be mad at all. KC was like at least this guy is a real is a real deal you know like he's <laughs> he's hunting he's not just a sales well, guy that sits in the office all day you know no,
3: let's just say let's just say i still have my bear tag so oh no story is, but, uh yeah no we're pretty we're pretty proud that everybody that works at stone glacier is pretty hardcore hunter yeah uh, everybody here gets after it which, yeah uh, I think you're seeing less and less of and sure. You know
2: what else I'm glad is you didn't say big hunter, you said hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many podcast episodes we've been on when somebody says, Yeah, he's a big hunter, da, da, da. I mean, we make kinda like make like the fat guy thing with our hands and laugh about it, you know, silently. <laughs> yeah.
3: well, so say, you're gonna be dumb, you gotta be tough. That's, so. right.
2: <laughs> that's right, hardcore hunters, and no, all that that's good stuff, dude. Um, so <clears throat> earlier you mentioned like uh a lot of times on these mountaineering style hunts or whatever, like it's a one time in one time out kind of thing. It's not a going in and grabbing loads and coming back or whatever. So part of that right. is like being able to make sure that you can haul all your meat and then, uh, have that, the bag part of your pack, uh, contain all your stuff. So what, like how much room do you, do you need for mm-hmm. a hunt like that in your bag?
3: Yeah, so picking, as far as picking a bag, picking a pack, um, things to consider would be the duration of your hunt, yep. how long you're going to be out there, and uh, a lot of personal preference on zipper and pocket configuration. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of our Sky Talus 6900, so that's a large backpack, yeah. 6900 mm-hmm. cubic inches, that's a big backpack. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's appropriate for the biggest trips I go on. It also has the added versatility of the lid being able to come off and the main bag, folding up and converting down into a smaller configuration. Mm -hmm. So whether I'm going out for the day or just going out for a night or two, I'll probably run it in that smaller, what we call bivy mode. And then, uh, if I've got an extended week long elk or sheep hunt, I can throw the lid on it, stand the main bag up tall and, uh, make it work for me. But you know, on average, if, our most popular western style bag option is our sky 5900 so that's our probably most most commonly chosen bag for a guy that's doing you know the biggest trip he might go on is a five six day elk hunt Mm -hmm. um that 5900 is a real sweet spot and it also has the ability to convert down into a great day pack without the lid as well Mm -hmm. um but when you start talking about a 7 10 14 day hunt You need a really big bag and the main thing that's changing between your gear list between a five-day hunt and a 14-day hunt is is food Mm -hmm. you just have a we just have way more food average day of food is going to weigh for me at least two to three pounds so you're talking about 30 pounds of food you're hauling on some of these hunts if you're out there for two if you're out there for two weeks so yeah um you kind of need need the big bag and then you know, depending on what time of year you're hunting, these later season hunts, you're gonna have more insulating layers and warm clothing. Whereas a September first elk hunt, you can get away with uh, minimal amounts of clothing. Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, so couple
3: variables, uh
2: yeah, yeah, for sure. How much, how much, uh, I guess, thought are you putting into like your daily weight as opposed to how much food that gets you in calories and stuff? Are you just kind of packing what you need to eat, or do you really break it down?
3: Uh, I've I've gone both ways. I've not really you know, I've just hastily packed my food as I run out the door for a weekend hunt and then I've meticulously planned uh every single day for a doll sheep hunt before. So I've done both. Um my biggest problem in the backcountry is maintaining an appetite. Yeah. Uh, your, your stomach is going to shrink you're not going to want to, is, to eat as much as you probably should and this is different for everybody but for me i think it's different uh, for me <laughs> I, I get
1: hungry
3: <laughs> uh, i struggle to maintain an appetite um uh, so i've gotten to the point where i'm gonna take food that i'm excited to eat and yeah. i know i can stomach and yeah, put that's down smart. so i used to be uh I used to not be as nice to myself and I would pack just like nothing but cliff bars. And that's due to <laughs> idolizing Kurt Roscoe, the founder of stone Glacier. Yeah, He won't even carry a stove because oh. he doesn't want to, doesn't want the added weight or so. He's a big bar guy and I've followed in his footsteps for a couple of years and just suffered through it. I can't eat a cliff bar to this day. Nothing against cliff bar. They make some great products and I use some of their other stuff, but, um, just taking stuff that I was excited to eat. So whether that was like cashews or chocolate um, or, you know, switching it up from trying different brands besides just Mountain House, trying, you know, Backpackers Pantry, Alpinair, Heather's Choice, just mixing it up mm-hmm. and having stuff that I knew I was going to be able to stomach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't, yeah, I, I let that be the first kind of, deciding factor when i'm packing my food before the weight yeah if if it weighs weighs a couple ounces more and i know i'm gonna eat it i'll take it yeah yeah yeah. i
2: got you if you're on (laughs) uh you know a little bit less intensive a hunt where you're still doing backpacking thing but you have the option of coming back to the truck halfway through would you do that to save that weight
3: Uh, if you're saying, if I've got a base camp to kind of ping pong out of.
2: Yeah. So like, say, say you can go out and spike out for three or four days and then loop back to the truck and refuel and, and, you know, maybe grab a good bite to eat there or something like that. Is that something you think about doing or would you rather just stay back there for the eight, nine days?
3: No, there's a lot of hunts that are, that is very appropriate to do. You know, that's typically like an elk hunt where you might go do a three day rip and then go regroup, Mm -hmm. uh, something like a, like a sheep hunt or a goat hunt. You're probably going to stay up on the mountain until uh the hunt is concluded mm-hmm. but you know hunting mule deer or hunting antelope or elk or whatever you're doing um you know I've, I've certainly had plenty of hunts where we make our way back to the truck to resupply <laughs> and uh kind of regroup and get back out there
1: yeah yeah so um i haven't noticed a lot of pockets on some of the bags that you guys offer is yeah. that um you know I, i've been noticing it seems like more and more people are are loving the simplicity of, of a bag like that in many options. And for yeah. me, I, I, I'm semi-organized. I'm not like mm-hmm. some neat freak or anything, but like, um, I, 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 look at packs and I'm like, man, there's nothing on that thing. I don't know where yeah. I put my matches or, you know, whatever. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Or what does your system look like? I guess inside the sure. pack. Yeah.
3: You know, by design, almost all stone glacier packs are, very streamlined there's not a lot of bells and whistles to them um it, you know our most full feature packs probably that sky talus and i say that just because it's got two side zip pockets and a 33 inch center zip mm-hmm. but besides that most of our bags are very clean in design so that's a couple reasons um save weight when you don't put a bunch of pockets and zippers everywhere, you're going to keep your weight down. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then uh, it also allows the end user to kind of customize and organize their backpack with some of our accessory pouches. Mm-hmm. So from our swing out pockets to our camp pockets to accessory pockets and hydro holsters, uh, you can kind of set up the pack how you want to run it. So I use a combination of camp pockets and swing out pockets to organize um, my first aid kit into a swing out pocket. I have a kill kit. In a swing-out pocket, which is my tags, knives, electrical tape, gloves, uh, stuff like that. And then in a large camp pocket is kind of my catch-all for my toiletries, my headlamp, my toothbrush, toilet paper, um, all the little stuff I might want in the tent at night, things like that. Mm -hmm. So
1: So for somebody who's from Texas that may not understand, (laughs) explain what those – the swing outs and all that. What is what are what do those different pockets look like? What is sure. the hydro uh, or whatever yep. you said or on that, you know some of these guys yeah. don't understand that lingo very well. That'd you know be what me. Mean? That's yeah. the guy I'm
3: talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so just referring to some of the accessories we make here at Stone Glacier for our backpacks. Swing out pocket is about a hundred cubic inch semi transparent white nylon pocket. It's Just an organizational pouch with a zipper on it. Uh, the camp pocket is the big brother to that. It's about 350 cubic inches, semi-transparent, white nylon pocket with the horseshoe-shaped zipper at the top. Um, both just organizational pouches. Mm-hmm. They and just float want around have... in there? There's attachment points throughout the inside of the backpack. Okay. So those bags have three-quarter-inch webbing stubs off of them. And throughout the inside of all of our backpacks, there are three-quarter-inch tri-slides or attachment points. Is that kind of like them. a Molly system? Same kind of thing? Yeah, not, not exactly Molly Webbing, but you can daisy-chain these accessory pockets and achieve the same thing. So, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Cool. And uh, so depending on – just to touch on a couple other popular accessories that people might customize their pack with, depending on whether you drink out of a water bottle or a bladder, if you run an analogy with uh, something called a hydro holster, that's going to put a water bottle kind of on your flank, mm-hmm. quick access to it. Uh, if you drink out of a bladder – is a hydro sleeve which would house up to a three liter bladder inside your backpack which you can route the hose through the hydro port after that mm-hmm. and then uh we make other things like rain covers which are obviously a smart thing to have on extended hunts <laughs> load cell dry bags which we uh recommend using for packing boned out meat in the load shelf um lots of other things to just kind of set the pack up exactly how you want it. Yeah,
2: sure. sure. When And talking about packing meat, you know, that's what we all aspire to do, right? So right, right. Um, do you do you like to bone out your stuff and put it in a bag or do you like to just take a quarter, stick it in a bag with a bone in it and haul
3: it? Every situation's different. Yeah. Um, I would say the average elk we pack out is usually bone-in quarters. Yeah. We're usually within five miles of a trailhead and we'll just start it's it's almost a time. Boning an animal out is going to take you an extra hour. Mm-hmm. And I've, in my mind, I'd rather just pony up the quarter and start start working, start hauling a quarter out. Yeah. Um, but the animal like uh, a sheep or a goat in a really remote, rugged area, those are almost always boned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Take, take the extra time to kind of, you know, don't, no sense in carrying something out that you don't have to.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. I mean, I've done... A little bit of both. There's always a bag of meat, you know, with an elk that is boned out. You know, back straps and just uh, yeah. you know, the hamburger back meat or and whatever. Flank and yeah. Rib and everything, yeah, and it always seems like that thing just ends up in a big ball at the bottom of the backpack, and it's just yeah. super terrible to haul. Is there a way to kind of avoid that, or is there a way that, like, a load shelf yeah. can do that?
3: There is. Um, when you load your load shelf, we recommend uh, taking the bag off the frame and then laying the frame flat on the ground. The step after that that's important is to evenly distribute the meat uh, vertically up and down the frame sheet. And then when the bag, your actual backpack bag, comes over the meat and becomes the compression panel against that bag of meat anchoring it to the frame sheet, uh, when you cinch it down into place, it's going to keep that meat locked to the frame vertically. Up and down uh distributing it across your back.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. It makes a like a sausage up and down your back more than just (laughs) a patty at the bottom. (laughs) That's cool. Cool. That's cool. So um whenever you're talking about, you know, placing that on your back, do you want that weight distributed from like top of the pack down to your lumbar or where where should you try to make the bulk of the weight sit?
3: So yeah, properly fitted backpack is gonna have belt anchored on the tips of your hip bone and Uh holding most of the weight. Um, The other important step is to have your shoulder straps making good, constant, even contact across the top and back of your shoulder. Uh, But the split, you know, we kind of talk about like an 80-20. You want 80% of the weight locked onto your hips and 20% on your shoulders. Now, that being said, there's a lot of personal preference in that division of weight And the first mile often feels a lot different than the seventh. Yeah. (laughs) So I might start like that, but then five miles in, you know, man, I just want to get some of this, uh, shifted up higher up onto my shoulders. So I might loosen my belt slightly and pull on my load lifters a little bit and transfer the weight up to my shoulders just to to give myself a break. Mm -hmm. Um, but everybody's a little different on that yeah what if you don't
2: have
1: hips what do you do then (laughs) i don't really i mean i'm straight up just as
3: tight as you can okay
1: (laughs) so what what about uh your sleeping situation like i'm interested in what that looks like for you on on a uh some kind of extended backcountry uh expedition that you might make and then also interested in how that packs into your into your pack
3: sure um so I use a I use a fifteen degree sleeping bag for almost everything I do. Um so our, our chilt cute fifteen degree sleeping bag is about a two pound setup and that goes with me everywhere. That is often the first thing in my backpack. I'll put that down at the bottom. Um and then with that I'll have my sleeping pad, which I have a number of so I've got a closet full of sleeping pads, but <laughs> um the one I most often use is I've got an REI one I use a lot. I've got a Expat, exped, or something like that, and I use those two the most. Uh, there's really popular ones out there, those Neo errors and stuff like that. They're kind of crinkly when mm-hmm. you lay on them, and sleeping's really important in the backcountry. If you're not going to sleep, you're not going to be able to do much the next day, and you're just going to be dragging ass and constantly falling behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so sleeping's really important. So uh, I have an inflatable pillow, my ThermaRest, that goes with me everywhere. That is a absolute lifesaver. Gone are the days of trying to like sleep on a balled up coat. Yeah, <laughs> and that and that actually makes that pillow alone is probably the biggest, the hottest tip I can give you as far as sleeping in the back country. <laughs> nice. That pillow is a lifesaver. Yeah, and then uh, so that's my my sleeping bag is the Chill Cute 15 degree, and that goes into the bottom of my backpack with my pillow and my sleeping pad. Um, the reason I use a 15 degree, even in colder weather hunts, is because I sleep in my clothes almost always. Um, Me too. A, I thought I was a weirdo. Sleeping in a uh, down, a, a nice down bag is actually a bit of like a convection oven. You can dry your clothes off.
1: Yeah. So if,
3: if you're kind of wet and you crawl up in a sleeping bag for a couple air, hours, you dry off. Cool. So, um,
2: I've heard guys doing that. Like, what's the extent of how that works? Like if you just get caught in a monsoon on September yeah. 12th, like, is it still a good
3: idea? It, it is. Yeah. yeah. I'm not kidding you. I was caribou hunting in the Alaska range last August. and just got pummeled by rain and you know, I've got rain gear on, but I'm sweating and packing. Getting a caribou up, back to an airstrip by myself. Oh. It's a multi-day thing. And I was just a mess. I mean, soaked to the bone and, uh curled up in my sleeping bag and dried off my sleeping bag uh got a little damp throughout that just because it's sucking the moisture off of me but mm-hmm. i from a survival standpoint I think it's a very smart thing to do
1: man it yeah. sounds so uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the worst thing that i could do in the back country but i mean if it works i understand and i definitely would probably try it if i was in that situation but yeah i just want to throw up thinking about it
2: well on that note do you bring like rain gear on a backcountry kind of hunt or is that something you just kind of deal with
3: yeah absolutely rain gear is always with me even in a day pack setup yeah Um, that's one of those things that's almost never comes out of my backpack Um,
1: so yeah rain pants and rain coat are always in my system is that like a is that like cheap frog togs, or is that something really expensive, or what are we I've, looking
3: at? Oh, I've got quite a few different brands. Um, I've been kind of running some some samples of some Stone Glacier products we're working on that we're excited to introduce everybody to next year. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So we got a couple <laughs> irons in the fire on that front. Sweet. Yeah. Well, so um, that and the combination of gators, um, you know, using gators and wet grass or loose rock or whatever or post hole and through snow mm-hmm. gators are pretty mandatory on those hunts
2: yeah gotcha. so uh gators are a thing i've i've used a little bit and i don't know i think i thought they looked cool so i got them and they did look <laughs> cool i looked like an elk hunting champion in them you know but like That's right i don't know if i really like Got a ton of benefit from them, and maybe mm-hmm. is it just really uh situationally dependent on when a gator actually is helpful or is it one of those things where like you wear it and then one day you're out there and man, it was really life saving kind of thing
3: yeah i if they're not on my calves, they're usually strapped to the bottom of my backpack. I'll always have them with me, yeah um, if you're going to encounter any kind of snow of any depth uh they're a lifesaver gotcha and then even just like a simple rain shower all the branches and leaves and grass uh if you don't have a gator on you go walking through a meadow the lower half of your
1: leg is just drenched
3: so um I, i've always got them with me and often more often than not have them on
1: yeah so speaking of that uh are you like a boots guy or do you wear uh trail runners or how do you what's your setup on your yeah, feet I'm,
3: like? a, I'm a leather boot guy gotcha um you know, for my days at working at Schnee's, I kind of bought into the uh, you know the eight-inch stiff leather boot, and I still wear them to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of good boot companies out there. Everybody's got different feet. And everybody's looking for something. You know, maybe maybe weight's important to you, or height, or stiffness. Um, personally, I like a taller, stiff boot. Um, it makes side hilling a lot easier towing in to gain elevation a lot easier um i have a mild insulation on my boots i almost always run about 200 grams of insulation in boots mm-hmm. um yeah but keeping your feet comfortable boots are so important i mean right after having a comfortable backpack i think boots are the most second most important thing yeah um because if your feet are going to get tore up you're going to have a really bad time out there
1: right what about trekking poles
3: yeah, I use them. Mm-hmm. Um I it's like four-wheel drive. Uh, they're most <laughs> oh, they're most beneficial I think when you're packing a lot of weight. Um if I've got 80 pounds of elk meat on my back, um man, I gain so much confidence and stability from having trekking poles out. They it's something I didn't use to use and now I don't go anywhere without
1: them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that like a um- is there any particular uh, details about a trekking pole that you prefer over others?
3: Yeah, I like uh, I like trekking poles that collapse, and you can break them down into smaller pieces and slap them onto the side of your path, and put them in your pack, and they're just kind of out of sight, out of mind. Mm. Um, I like them to be very lightweight. There's some extremely lightweight trekking poles available today. Um, it's a shame they used to, they used to be this tool. You know, any any mountain hunter out there probably knows about this thing, but there used to be a tool called a snowscopic, and it was a tool made by the brand Petzl. And the snowscopic was an ice axe with a telescoping uh, trekking pole out of the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Oh. So it was it was awesome. You could, uh, you know, it was your trekking pole. You could level a camping site with it if you needed to make a flat spot for your tent. You could dig for water with it. You could self-arrest if you slid off the mountain. It was just the most badass little mountain hunter tool and they stopped making it. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> it seems to know, happen a lot. They're, they're like uh, the holy grail, you know, they're like a hidden gem. No, the people that have them aren't giving them up easily anymore. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it uh, it's funny how um, – a lot of times you think products are expensive when they come out, wait till they cancel them and then see where the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. where the price goes, right? People are limited edition. Yeah. No kidding, man. No kidding. But no, that's cool. I, I uh, I've never done the trekking pole thing. And I think definitely this year I'm going to have them yep. with me. Uh, I don't know how much I'll, you know, I guess it's just like anything else. You kind of need to kind of see how it fits to your system or whatever. And I'm just, I'm still developing my system, you know? So, yeah, but, no uh, doubt. I think that, uh, especially the heavy loads on your back you, you know it's funny we're flatlanders right uh, and you would right. think that like the hardest thing would be gaining elevation but i think for me the descent is so much harder than the ascent it might mm-hmm. not feel like it at the time but it's a lot harder on your legs and i think that those yeah, would really come in handy
3: there yeah it's a real quad burner coming down yeah. Yes. you might not uh, lose your breath you know going uphill you're just constantly trying to catch your breath you're not doing that going downhill but those, your quads are going to light on fire. Oh man.
1: Yeah. That's where mine were giving out going into the black Canyon. You know, it's just straight down. We definitely could have used them there. Um, yeah. what about, what about your water system? Is that, uh, is that uh, going to be a bladder system or a Nalgene, uh scenario? Yeah. Kind of combination of the two. I don't, uh, personally, I don't like drinking out
3: of a bladder. Um, I don't like the mouthpiece and the hose and stuff it always tastes like plastic
2: man i hate it Mm -hmm. sure
3: (laughs) (laughs) and in any type of cold weather which we get into real fast here in montana um the hose freezes yeah it Uh gets ruled out pretty quick to where you have to have a water bottle Mm -hmm. um but what i do carry are large bladders i've got like a six liter msr bladder that Mm -hmm. i'll use for uh hauling water Mm -hmm. so I'll use bladder systems to carry a lot of water. Between my two Nalgene's and that bladder, I can haul, like, eight liters to camp, mm-hmm. and then I'll just leave, I'll have water at camp.
1: Um, Is that bladder uh, just sit in your pack on your on your bag and everything, or how does that?
3: Yeah, so it's usually empty. I've usually got it empty, and oh, okay. then when I get it full, I'll just haul it to camp, hang it off a tree, and then it just lives there. Gotcha. Um, it's just kind of a backup. Yeah. Yeah. But,
2: so are you a fan of, like, the— uh, you talk about hauling it back to camp. Are you a fan of what I guess you call bivvy style hunting where you pack up everything that morning and head out? Or do you like to kind of go out there, set up your camp, and then hunt on radiuses from there?
3: Yeah. Um, I like I like being mobile and yeah. being able to move as I go. That being said, more, you know, more often than not, I'm probably not taking my tent with me in the morning. I'm probably getting in, setting up my spike camp, leaving my tent in the morning and returning to it at night and then, you know, maybe moving every couple of days, but not every night. Yeah. When you talk about bivy hunting, uh, that is what I, th- when I hear that term, I think of sleeping in a bivy sack. So not having a tent with you, but a bivy system to go over your sleeping bag. Um, I'm too claustrophobic for that stuff. I've never been a bivy guy. <laughs> I, I never, I never will be Tents yeah. are light and tents or lightweight enough. I'm just not a bivy guy. Um, so yeah, the three types of camps. guess like you got the bivy camp, which I'm not doing. Spike camp, which I'm taking my my four season tent, setting it up in the backcountry, and returning to it every evening. Yeah, and moving every couple of days, and then like a base camp style hunt where uh, you might have the comforts of a you know a truck nearby, and you can come in and out of there and resupply real easily, re- live very comfortably. Yeah, something like that.
1: It's good terminology. It's stuff that uh, we don't we're not exposed to all the time. When we talk hunting and we talk about tree stands and, you know, yeah. pinch points and all these different things in the whitetail woods. And, and, uh, we don't get to talk about bivy camp and what that actually yeah. means, you know? So it's good to know for us. Um, what's your, uh, what's your first aid kit look like?
3: Yeah. Um, adventure medical kit is the company who made it. I have since kind of customized it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So um. Honestly, I'm prepared for more catastrophic injuries um, in the sense that I've got some supplies for that. But the most common thing I need out there is often uh like band aids. Like mm-hmm. I could cut my hands and stuff like that. Um, so the most common thing I'm reaching into that first aid kit for is band aids. So I carry a lot of band aids. Gotcha. Um. But I've also carried a small bag of quick clot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was to have some kind of gnarly compound fracture falling off a cliff or something. Ooh. Um, and then probably the most important thing I carry as far as safety is my delorem inreach, which is a SOS button. So, mm-hmm. um, being able to call a helicopter in if things go really awry is in ni- some nice peace of mind to have. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No this kidding. might be
2: kind of intricate. And if you don't really know, it's fine. But, uh, on those band-aids, like band-aids, just fall off, like, real easy, right? Like, I, I do construction for a living. and It isn't even worth putting one on, right? Have you found, like, a system, or are you making your own, like, with Leuco tape or something? Or how are you keeping a Band-Aid on your finger or on your hand or elbow or whatever happens?
3: Yeah, I guess um, most of the times I'm just, like, fixing up my fingers yeah. after banging mm-hmm. them around. Um, so you get the full wrap out of the Band-Aid, they're, they're often staying on. Yeah. But, yeah, I agree with you. That it
1: can be a battle. Definitely. So, uh, favorite mountain house meal. Ooh, that's a good question.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I like the simple ones, um, like the mac and cheese. I can oh, yeah. just put down over and over again. It's high <laughs> in calories and it tastes good and it's easy to eat. Um, I'm also a big fan of the chicken breasts and mashed potatoes, which is just really simple. Um, it's two grilled chicken breasts and instant mashed potatoes and just kind of feels like you're eating at a diner or something yeah yeah um not crazy about the rice ones i don't really eat those yeah uh, lasagna mountain house lasagna shout out but my lasagna i love it <laughs> it used to be uh as a mountain house lasagna has got a bad rap man you got they used to make it with this cheese that stuck to your fork, uh-huh. like they were like it was the end of the world. <laughs> and, um, I people complained about it a lot. It was like people were like, "Yeah, I like the lasagna, but the damn cheese sticks to my fork." And I, ironically enough, liked it. I didn't have anything else to do sitting there on camp. I just kind of <laughs> chew, the, chew the cheese off my fork, pick it off of there, and it was. It, I liked it. Yeah, they have since changed it. The cheese they're using in Mountain House lasagna today is is different, and it does not stick to your fork anymore. So that might be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what you like. Yeah, <laughs> the flavor's the same.
2: That's funny. Does it bug you to not? Okay, so back to the mac and cheese one. Does it bug you to not have meat in a meal?
3: Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I I don't have to have meat every single meal, um, but I do try to integrate it, you know, every other day at the very least. Yeah. You know, something I carry I almost always have jerky with me. Yeah. It's part of jerky or snack sticks or pepper sticks or anything like that. So I guess I'm getting meat throughout the day from stuff like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Pete, you've given us a lot of good information, man. But uh, I was going to see if you had one just, like, primo tip for just Mm -hmm. making backcountry life better.
3: Yeah. You know, uh, take kind of already touched on it, but I'll re-highlight taking food that you're going to be excited to eat. Um, those are the, the small victories throughout the day, you know, being excited about your snacks and keeping yourself well fed and then making sure you're comfortable at night and sleeping well. And I do that. Uh, you know, that my pill, I give my pillow so much credit. <laughs> I, slept, I slept on, you know, an empty backpack or balled up clothing for so long. You just, your neck gets in a weird yeah. place and you sleep, you don't sleep well. And, so, yeah, sleep well and eat well. Uh take care of your, take care of your feet. Uh, if you think you're getting a blister, take care of it, uh nurse it. Don't don't ignore it. Yeah. Yep. Um, but just being prepared mentally and physically, you're not gonna get in that position if your boots are already broken and you're you know, if you're uh already conditioned for the hunt and ready to go. So just be prepared for it
2: yeah yeah it cool. makes sense eat well and sleep well i kind of uh, try to live by that so there's no reason <laughs> yeah, why don't carry that, that into the backcountry too right <laughs> and right. uh i have thermo rest pillow written down in my notes now yes, so sir. you've been raving about that thing i'm gonna to check it out but uh there you go yeah dude you talked about how the goat hunt changed your life and mm-hmm. uh I, I believe it uh because you are the founder of the goat alliance is that
3: correct that's right.
2: Yeah, is, is the Goat Alliance the proper term? Is it Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, or what's the... what's the?
3: Uh... Yeah, Rock, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, RMGA. Yeah. I got you. Okay,
2: so what's RMGA doing for goats, man?
3: Yeah, uh, RMGA is the only uh, wildlife conservation organization focused on North America's mountain goats. So uh, we started in 2013, I believe, and uh, just kind of grew out of a my personal passion for those wild animals and their wild places they lived. And, uh, I'm a proud member and strong supporter of the wild sheep foundation. And I quickly learned that there just wasn't a, uh, counterpart for, for the mountain goat. So, yeah, I uh, kind of started as a very grassroots beginning with orchestrating back country volunteer projects to assist regional biologists with, uh, Population counts, which are then used for making management decisions on how many tags should be in an area or not be in an area. Um, and now today the organization is quite large and uh, fruitful, and we do everything from fund helicopter time to PhD students' field work and everything in between. So we still uh, stay true to our roots and host backcountry volunteer projects across North America every summer. Um, but, uh, yeah, the organization has definitely matured and we're fortunate to be able to financially back, uh, research and, uh, relocation projects, helicopter time, uh, grad student work, field research and everything in between. So yeah, we got a lot going on.
2: That's cool, man. And honestly, uh, if I hadn't found, uh, Goat Alliance on Instagram, I would have never known that um, the uh, Sheep Foundation didn't encompass goats. Like, I know that probably sounds so, like, amateur of me or whatever, but, like, it just seems like it would be one and the same, right? And and I understand why it's not now, but, like, before I was like, oh, goats are good, you know, like, they got them. (laughs) You know what I'm
3: saying? Yeah. uh, You know, give credit where credit is due. The Wild Sheep Foundation is our most – Our most valued affiliate in the world of conservation. Um, Yeah, their their mission is for the conservation of the four species of wild sheep in North America, and mountain goat does not fall under that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but they do see a tremendous amount of value in us as we do them, and uh, proud to call them a close partner.
1: So so how's the how's the goat doing across the landscape, man?
3: Mountain goats doing well. Um, we have roughly 100,000 mountain goats in North America. Um, you know, roughly half of those living in British Columbia.
1: Uh-huh.
3: Um, mountain goat is doing well on a continental scale. There are some smaller battles being fought, and some some isolated populations like Western Montana. A lot of our native populations are not doing great and declining um, in kind of a mysterious way. And then on the flip side, you have areas that have so many mountain goats like Kodiak Island that they're encouraging the harvest of females. So um. Um, kind of a diverse spread of, of the mountain goats battle and story right now. But yep. across the continent, we're doing well, and I believe the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance is doing good work and going to ensure the future of that species for generations ahead of us to enjoy
2: yeah that's cool bro so if uh somebody wants to enjoy the hunt for a mountain goat i know you probably get asked this a lot but just what's your best shot is it to just pony up the money and go buy a tag up north somewhere or should you play the points game
3: you know, I I would play the points game. I certainly would have my name in the hat. and I do have my name in the hat in several western states. Yeah. Um, that being said, if you don't want to wait, and you want to go mountain goat hunting, there are plenty of affordable options um, throughout Alaska. British Columbia is going to be a little bit higher premium of the cost, and that's because the goats are bigger. Um, but places like Kodiak Island offers tremendous hunting opportunity uh mm. you don't have you don't part of that island you have to draw the tag part of it you don't so
2: you know the name kodiak also goes with a bear that it would probably wig me out real hard so i don't know <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah all joking aside the bear country thing it would be i mean that's talk about a whole nother consideration that we never have to worry about there's a reason i never hunted north of colorado and it's probably bears <laughs> so no but that's cool man that's great so pete you're a guy who lives it does it uh you make your living from outdoor stuff so uh we'd like to give you an opportunity to tell us like where can people find out more about stone glacier and all the cool products y'all have going on man
3: yeah absolutely um you can find us on every social media platform and StoneGlacier dot um if you guys got any questions about gear backcountry hunting um, technical use of our stuff please do not hesitate to contact us I'm based in bozeman montana and uh we can be reached right here at our shop, 406 404 or just info, I-N-F-O, at StoneGlacier.com. Dang, dude, drop the phone number, man. Like, that's that's next
2: level ready for some customer <laughs> support. Scared. That's right. I said, bring it on. That's awesome, dude. Well, we'll be sure and link to all that below both the Goat Alliance and the Stone Glacier stuff. Uh, uh, looking forward to seeing some of that new more apparel kind of stuff that you were talking about man and oh, yeah. uh that'll yeah. that'll be kind of neat. It's kind of cool to see another player kind of enter the game on, on that stuff um anyways Pete thanks so much dude It's been great uh It's cool to talk to somebody who who's kind of a younger guy like us and uh has Man, you've been getting after it for a while, a you know. Like you said, you were twenty-two and had a goat mounted. Like, golly, man, when I was twenty-two. It <laughs> <laughs>
1: that wasn't that—that's for sure. You're chasing hogs around know, at twenty-two. I
2: know, man. That's cool, Pete. Well, hey, dude, thanks cool. so much for spending some time with us, dude. Yeah, thanks, guys, so much for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah, no problem, man. We'll talk to you later. All right. See ya. See ya. Man, that was some killer info. If you found this interview helpful, be sure and leave us a review below
1: and comment what you thought was the most helpful tip from this episode. For sure. Make sure you also follow us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, and also subscribe on YouTube so you can see how these hunts turn out. Remember, this is your element. Living it. <laughs> Been waiting the whole life for that.
0: After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, Wild Game Recipes for the Grill, Smoker, Campfire, and Camp Stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with aji verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.